0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study.
1: Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. I feel it is important to say from the outset that this episode was recorded on October 23rd because I don't know what the future days will bring. This episode is dedicated to the return of our captives and the success of the IDF in all of its missions. This breishit series is titled Chosenness and Choices. The Book of Breshit is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, Cain, Noach, Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov. But these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make. And it is a nexus between being chosen and the human choices that actualize this divine will in the world that we are exploring in these episodes on the Book of Breshit. Toshat Chai opens with the monumental purchase of Marat the cave of the patriarchs and the people of Chet, which conveys both the responsibility of burying one's dead and the importance of it being on one's own soil, what the Torah calls in Achuzat Kever, how painfully we have relearned this lesson in the past few weeks. The majority of the parsha concerned itself with the search for Yitzchak's wife by the servant of Avram. Resolved to marry his son to a woman from within the extended family, Eved Avraham goes out in search of a shidduch, uh, and the way that Rifka enters the family and her role within the family will be one that will be an element of today's conversation. The Parsha ends by filling in the rest of Avram's family life, his children, his wife Keturah, and the Parsha's final section recounts the children of Ishmael in what is the Book of Reshit's consistent way of exiting a character off stage once and for all. It will do the same with Esav's numerous descendants. I am always pleased to welcome back Rachel Sharansky-Danziger to the podcast. Uh, she has a unique ability to shed nuanced, sensitive light on our most classic texts. Rachel blogs about the intersection between life, parenting, history, and text for the times of israel 929 Keller and other online venues this year rachel te- is teaching at matan's jerusalem branch she teaches virtually at mayan torah from the sources in boston and is writing a book on family drama in the book of judges rachel it is a pleasure to have you back here
2: thank you so much yosefa it's uplifting to be with you especially in this time
1: Yes, most definitely. And today's episode, we are really going to shine a light on Yitzchak. Right? This theme, the theme of this series, are the messengers of God. And Yitzchak famously doesn't have that many prakim, that many chapters that are devoted solely to him. We sort of shift rather quickly. His main, his main chapter is chapter uh, twenty-six, and and so I want to, I want through our conversation today to sort of be able to shed a light on who who Yitzhak is, what elements or people in his life enable him to fulfill the mission that God has given him, what that mission really looks like. So why don't you jump into that, wherever that feels right for tonight's conversation.
2: I want to say that it's not just that Yitzhak doesn't have that many chapters dedicated to him. It's also that he doesn't make so many choices within those chapters. If the theme of this series is the chosen and their choices It's, you know, if you were to draw a graph of how many choices the characters make in Bereshit, Yitzchak is very, very low on that graph. It's remarkable when you compare him to both his father and his son, Avraham and Yaakov, who constantly face these dilemmas with very high stakes and need to make their own choices about which path to forge. Think about Avraham deciding to follow God's lachlecha. Think about Yaakov, this... Deciding to go, leave home, and then deciding to come back home and face Asav. It's all very weighty choices. And it's Itzhak's whole fate seems to some extent dictated to him uh, by his father's looming character behind him. You know, Joseph Campbell in The Hero's Journey talks about how the hero of almost every story ever written, no matter where and when, needs to leave home. And by home he means the familiar, normal status quo, because that's how a story develops. A story develops when you leave the familiar, when you leave the place where everything is already known and safe, and not necessarily good. Think about Cinderella in the cinders or Harry Potter under uh, the stairwell in Privet Drive, but known, safe, predictable. A story can't evolve there. A story can only evolve when the hero is called upon to cross some metaphorical or sometimes literal threshold, delve into the unknown, grow through the process, and then gain the power to go back emotionally to where he came from or she came from and redeem that place, change that place, change himself, herself for the better through it. Remarkably, Itzhak just doesn't follow that path. He spends his entire life in the familiar world of following in his father's footsteps. Think about his adulthood. I mean, think about his youth, first of all, right? He's the one whose birth is prayed for by other people, celebrated by other people, who's then bound on a mountaintop by his own father. Throughout all these things, he's the passive vessel to other people's piety, to other people's emotions. And even as an adult, he doesn't choose his own wife. He doesn't choose his own destination, not fully. When there's a famine in the land and he thinks about leaving, much like his father left before him. So even that choice is somewhat an echo of the past. God literally intervenes and tells him, don't stay within the familiar, stay within this land. Why? And that's really a remarkable comment not because I love you and I care about you or something that has to do with Yitzchak himself, but rather, um, and God says that in Bereshit Kavav, Pasuk Gimel, reside in this land and I will be with you and bless you. I will assign all these lands to you and to your heirs, fulfilling the oath that I swore to your father, Avraham. And that's where the real truth comes out because it's about Avraham. It's about the oath to Avraham. So even when Itzhak sets out, that choice, that way of life, that kind of paradigm of who he is remains very much the almost the dictating principle of everything he does, which of course raises the question, what does it mean to be our forefather? How is he a model for us if he doesn't make his own choices, if everything he is is an extension almost of Abraham's journey?
1: I agree with everything meaning I I really I really think that that prism for Yitzchak is is the truth and I think that there there's so many ways and we'll keep exploring the way that the Torah expresses that. I I would just intervene and say that there is a certain degree of heroism in actually following through with a weighty mission meaning there, there's this very personality dependent, but to take such a serious mission like Avram received, and to actually be able to successfully pass it over to another generation when you are not the one who created that mission. There's a real strength that you need to have in order for that to happen. Now, we'll talk about whether it successfully passes over because of Yitzhak or maybe because of somebody else, but I feel that that, to a certain degree, is the weight that's on his shoulders, right? Is he going to be able to carry over Avram's mission? I don't think that he has to necessarily make, you know, he has to create new dimensions, but there's something very, very difficult about being someone who received something and then you have to pass it on because it's it's not actually yours. Does that make any sense?
2: absolutely and in fact for most of my adulthood i kept coming back to the uncomfortable realization that our generation is more of the itzhak generation than the avraham generation i felt it very strongly since i grew up on these stories of the heroism of the founders of the state of my parents generation and you know most of you know probably that my parents were big figures in the struggle for Soviet Jewry, um, slightly, <laughs> and I was I grew up surrounded by the victors of that struggle. You know, mm-hmm. all their comrades in arms, and I grew up reading Dvora Omer's novels about the great heroines of early Zionism, and I felt like I didn't have any heroism left for me. <laughs> I felt it's not fair. You know, you're raising us on these stories of greatness, but all we're left with is arguing over the prices of cottage cheese. Mm -hmm. So I kept coming back to Yitzchak's story and looking for myself in it and how to find the grace not to be the pathbreaker. I do want to say regarding that, that recent years with first the crisis of COVID and now with the war upon us uh, changed my perspective somewhat and made me realize that the story is never over. The heroism, perhaps sadly, is still necessary and yeah. uh, we're very much called upon to break new paths even as we continue the journey that we were set upon by our parents.
0: Yeah.
1: I think that that, again, if we just have a moment's break for, again, our current reality that we're in, that's very much a, right, we we thought that the big wars were behind us and, you know, we don't know what it'll be. but very much that feeling of oh well I, I didn't think that my peer group was going to be the ones who you know go out one day and then and then aren't coming back a different day and yeah it's a very strong realization uh, definitely among my peers that may not be the case
2: so I do want to say that beyond the fact that I find it's like an interesting role model for us because even with this war let's acknowledge that we are continuation we are yes. A continuity yes beyond that And I hope we will get back to that later. But I also think that Yitzhak had to be a follower for us to have our covenant with God. And this is something I heard many, many years ago in a share with Rabbi Nithya ziegler who pointed out that there must have been other great shining lights of wisdom and piety in human history that we know nothing about because nobody came after them to take what they realize about the world, what they maybe even converse to God about, we don't know, and turn it into a living legacy that can be passed down. So in many ways, yes, Itzhak doesn't seem to be making personal choices, but in every step he takes, walking the prescribed line and not straying from it and not looking up and imagining a brand new future for him to create Mm -hmm. in every step as he commits himself to following in his father's footsteps, his father and mother, I should say, he is making perhaps the most significant choice of all. And that is a choice to take what would have otherwise been one man's remarkable relationship with God and turning it into a tradition that can be received and heard and then
1: Passed on. What do you think existed within his family structure in the search for a particular wife right what what enabled him or what what enabled him and supported the ability to to pass over that tradition
2: I think that um I mean it's a very broad question and I don't think we can exhaust it um, here in our conversation but I want to suggest to look at its path in its entirety through the prism of one moment in his life and that is the moment when he first encounters his then-to-be-future wife rivka and it's a very short moment it's almost an afterthought after an entire chapter chapter 24 dedicated to eliezer finding rivka choosing rivka sorry traveling towards rivka first negotiating with her father and brother, convincing them to let her come, them trying to delay it and eventually asking her if she wants to go and her coming with it. This is the majority of chapter 24. Almost as an afterthought, there's these few verses that describe the moment when Yitzchak and Rebecca actually meet and form a family. And I think that it's easy to almost ignore that part. It's, it's easy to kind of read through it and just look for the next, and yet if we look carefully right there in those few psukim, I think they offer us the key to Yitzchak's ultimate success. And I do want to make a comment here and say that I absolutely agree that it looks as if Yitzchak falters. It definitely, it's definitely true that his family is not a happy one. The family he forms, with Rivka, is a very, very complicated family with tensions that run the course of many, many, many decades and poison relationships for generations, if not millennia to come, at least symbolically. And as the Natsiv points out, a lot of it stems from the fact that Yitzhak and Rivka don't talk to each other. A lot of it stems from the fact that Yitzhak and Rivka don't talk to each other. In that scene that I'm making such a big deal about, and we will analyze it now, uh, soon in, in detail, but there's a lot of things, but there's no communication between the two protagonists.
0: Mm-hmm. And this
2: continues for the almost entirety of their relationship throughout the whole drama of who will get the brachot, who will get the blessings. They never talk to each other. It never occurs to Rivka to resolve the problem by talking to her husband, at least not on stage, not in the biblical text. The very first time they talk to each other, or rather Rivka talks to Yitzchak, is after Jacob already came dressed as a sav per her instructions and got the blessings, after she hears a sav threatening to kill Jacob one day down the line, and she wants to get Itzhak to support the notion of sending Jacob away for his protection. But even that, she doesn't tell Itzhak the truth. She doesn't just tell him, I'm afraid for Jacob's life. She tells him instead, I don't want him to marry local women, which is probably also true, but it's not the whole truth. So even the first time we hear some communication with them, it's not genuine. It's not what we would call authentic communication, you know, that marriage counselors would encourage spouses to engage in in this day. All of that is to say, though, that while their relationship probably shouldn't be studied as a model um, for, you know, how we want our marital communications to go in our own lives. With all this complexity, with all these personal difficulties and challenges, they do succeed, It's and Rufkav do succeed at forming a family under the covenant and passing the tenets of the covenant and the relationship to God onwards. And all of that was to say that I think that in order to understand why they succeed, despite their relationship shortcomings, is all hidden in seed form, so to speak, Already in the scene of their first encounter.
1: So, first of all, I just want to pipe in and say that last year we we did an episode on on the relationships of the uh, matriarchs and patriarchs. So it's definitely one that you can that you can check out and go back. It's episode eighty three, uh, and we definitely we, I mean we speak about all the avot relationships, but we also shine the light on on Yitzchak and Rivka. I, I think that it goes without saying that being chosen and having a positive family dynamic don't seem to go hand in hand. So we'll, we'll take that as a given and that I agree that the Avod have and, imano have dif- and Imahod have different kinds of relationships. Uh, and I don't even know if there's so much spoken dialogue per se between Avram and Sarah, but the presentation of them always seems to be somewhat together and paralleled. And and in this case, because they had such a deep difference of opinion like the fissure there was so strong between them and they are continually set up as being opposed to each other one favors one son over the other right now i will say that it kind of recalls ideas of you know opposites attract i'm not saying they're opposites but this idea that you don't have to occupy the same space as your spouse for it to be a successful relationship but as as you've already essentially said there needs to be communication to bridge those gaps between you but but that being said Rifka deeply resembles somebody in Yitzchak's past, right? She deeply resembles his father Avraham. So, can we can we sort of go to that that piece about how she, how what she brings up for Yitzchak, right? What what does she symbolize, and what does she also quite literally how she fits into that family structure?
2: So, I want to take a step back first and say that we we talked already about how in order to pass on the legacy, Yitzchak had to fashion himself into a vessel for his father's shining light. How he had to design himself into a follower. Now, we don't know if that was his natural inclination or a choice that he kept making over and over and over again. We simply do not know. He's one of the most opaque characters Mm -hmm. in our story. We really, really don't know much about his motivations. And rarely do we get to hear anything about his emotions which is why when we do, it's important, and we'll get back to that, I think, later. However, the fact that he so completely turned himself into a vessel presents a problem for passing Abraham's legacy, because in a way its Yitzchak needs to pass forward two pieces, two complementary traditions. One is the actual covenant, what God promised and what God requires in return. And Yitzchak passes it on brilliantly because he keeps following what God said and pursuing the promises God promised. And presumably there are a lot more details about conduct and morals and ethics and divinity that we're passing along with that, that are not given to us as readers of the text. However, if this is all we pass on, it has the potential to become very stifled and stifling, you know, dead letters on a page. Something that doesn't adapt with the times, um, something fossilized, and something that can be used for tyrannical purposes politically and become very impoverished mm. religiously, spiritually.
1: And diluted. Diluted,
2: mm-hmm. yes. So it's always been important to pass on another aspect of Abraham's tradition, which is his initiative. His iconoclasm, his refusal to accept the world as it is, his willingness to look at the world around him and at God's decision and say, this is not just, this is not right and we need to fight for it. His ability to look and see people around him and despite their wrongs, despite their vices, welcome them into his home and fight for them, argue for them, even if they're sinners in stone. that is the invigorating, enlivening spirit that turns the rest of the covenant into a living tradition, into something that we can really live, something that we can call our a tree of life that we hold on to. But by fashioning himself into the ultimate follower par excellence, Itzhak in a sense, removes his own ability to pass on this lively aspect of Abraham's tradition. And this is where Rivka and her similarity to Abraham really make a big difference. Because we meet Rivka by a well where she practices gmilut chasadim, acts of loving kindness, with an eagerness and a haste that very strongly echoes Abraham's behavior when he hosted the angels, for example, and his behavior in general. She runs, she goes out of his way, she gives more than his ass with her. Not only is she so energetic and so giving, but she also later chooses to follow the call. It's not just her father and brother signing off the marriage contract. They then call her and ask her, do you want to go with this man? And she says, Elech, I shall go, very strongly echoing the lech lecha that Abraham followed. Not only that, she's living her father house and her moledet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mother, she physically makes a
1: journey that is clearly an, an echo of Avraham's journey. And she's physically ge- changing her space.
2: And geographically, it's the same journey, just mm-hmm. to put it out there. It's exactly yes. the same journey. Yes. And I think a lot of it means that she's bringing those traits back into Avraham's family. It's in order to carry out his role, needed to alienate himself or distance himself from these traits, but Rivka comes and complements it. And you said earlier how um, you know opposites attract, or people can occupy different spaces in their partnership as long as they communicate. I think it's like and Rivka show us that sometimes you don't even need the communication. It would have been better, maybe, if there was communication on a personal level, but the fact of the matter is that when different people fill different roles and do what they can, within a relationship, be it a marriage or a national journey, it makes a difference. And when I look at the people around me, and different people are doing different things always, but also right now, some people are cooking food for the Miluim Nikim's wife. Some people are in the army. Some people are focusing on keeping their children sane. Some people are um, writing articles. Some people are teaching. Some people are working on building educational systems for the evacuees. Everybody's doing things they're good at and as a whole we're succeeding because of that to be strong within this moment so i see in it an echo of the success of rivka and it's
1: this is much more than opposites attract the dynamic that you're speaking about right now is the dynamic of of imago theory in imago theory uh of harville hendrix so he speaks very much about the fact that we marry our unfinished business And right when we meet somebody and we say, oh, you know, I... I'm so, so overwhelmed by them. I feel like I've known them my whole life or that feeling of like coming home. It's because we have met somebody who echoes many of the traits of our dearest caretaker. That could be a parent. It could be one parent. It could be an older sibling, but that we, we look for these images, right? These images of the people that we love. So that's just so classically, I think, represented by what you're what you're explaining right now and the way that Rifka deeply resembles Avraham because it's not only that she resembles Avraham and therefore that's a nice thing because Yitzchak almost intuitively, subconsciously, recognizes that part uh, that he will need to succeed. And of course, famously in the pasuk, she also comforts him after the death of his mother, meaning both by being a woman, she fills in a space of mother, but she also is very much like his father. She literally is a full portrait of of both of his parents. But I think also what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is that he needed that element in order to successfully do what he had to do. I mean, Yitzchak alone wouldn't have necessarily been able to carry over that tradition successfully. And, and on the most basic level, simply because he would have chosen the wrong son. But on a deeper, more spiritual level, what you're saying is that he didn't have that that intrepid spirit in the way that Avraham did. And so Rivka comes into his life, and she fills in that space.
2: I think that the scene where they encounter each other makes it vivid for us, those differences between them and the way they complement each other through just the details of the scene. If you think about, for example, setting. In the beginning of this scene, when they meet each other, right, Rivka is seated on a camel, and Yitzchak is doing, is coming back from visiting Be'er Lechairoi the well of Lechairoi And each of those settings tells us so much about their inner world, because Rivka is literally sitting on the camels that she gave water to, the camels that were the test of her Avraham-like loving-kindness, which in Hebrew is called G'milut Chasadim, the echo of Gamal, camel, and G'milut Chasadim is very cute there. Uh, it's very resonant and more than that she is in motion she is sitting on the camel that takes her from her home into the unknown of a new marriage with a man she never met before so she's literally embodying her avrahamness her openness to the unknown in her seat in her place she's on on the other hand what is Itzhak doing he's coming back from a well that played a significant role in his brother's life. When Hagar was running away, that's where the angel revealed himself to her and told her that she will have a son. So he's looking back. He's looking at his family history. He's looking at the brother he lost early on. The Midrass- And many he- say
1: also he was there because he was living there at that time, I meaning he had actually gone to live there, and therefore he had to come back. Like there's a intentional journey back to his, to his father's home. So it's even stronger if he's living there, I meaning he's actually dwelling in that past.
2: Exactly. And also, not only that, he's in the Sedeh. If I'm not mistaken, the last place before that in Tanakh that we mentioned Sadeh, is the Sadeh where the Me'ara is, where the cave is, where he buries his mother. So even that word, and you could say it's a little bit of a weak connection, but together with Be'er the I think it comes together and it strengthens each other. The places he's dwelling in are backwards-oriented. They're past-oriented. There's somebody else's story oriented, in a sense, whereas Rifka is inhabiting her story. She's the perfect Joseph Campbellian hero. She's heading out. She's going to embrace the unknown and, you know, rule it, shape it, in her own uh, vision.
1: She's even physically above Yitzhak in that first moment, right? I Meaning the physical structure, she's higher than him. She quickly, she quickly changes that but the initial position is that she's higher up.
2: Correct, and before she even changes, I don't I'll get to that in a second, even what they see when they notice each other, I think, and how they respond to it continues this characterization of their oppositeness, I know it's not really a word, they're, the way they're complementary, because Yitzchak raises his eyes and he sees camels. That's what he sees. He doesn't see his father's camels. He doesn't see his father's, you know, caravan. He doesn't see a woman on a camel. No, he sees camels. And it leaves us to wonder if what it means is that he's kind of innocent. He doesn't see human design, ownership, definitions. He just sees what is, or to the contrary, he sees very, very deeply And he sees that gemilut chasadim, that acts of loving kindness that's associated with Rebecca, and he sees that she's bringing what he needs to complete his uh, ability to to accomplish his life's mission. And I think that that ambiguity is actually very, very typical of Tanakh's representation of Yitzchak. We never know if the problem is that he sees too deep or that he doesn't see. We don't know if he prefers a sav because he sees some good in him that's buried really, really deep or because he just doesn't see the bat. We don't know.
1: I meet people like this who you're not sure if, they're, if something in their simplicity is because they see to the core or because they don't see the layers. It's a, it's a trait that you can see on other people. Exactly.
2: I, I know people like that, also some of my favorite yeah. people. Uh, yes, have that.
1: agree with you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, that's very interesting. We'll talk about that after the podcast, Rafael. Why those um, are some of my favorite people. <laughs> but
2: let's contrast that to Rebecca for a second here. Um, because what does Rebecca see? What does Rivka, I keep calling her Rebecca or Rivka interchangeably, but what does Rivka see when she raises her eyes and sees him? It says in the text, et She saw Itzchak. It's very direct. She sees exactly the person she's supposed to see. Now, we later see that she's not sure who he is, but she sees him, she recognizes his significance. And what happens afterwards is even more significant, because if you look at the text, and if you're interested, it's in the end of uh, chapter Kapitalet 24 and verses 56 to 67, Is that whole, the entirety of that scene, is that Yitzchak sees the camels and he does nothing. There's no response. He doesn't choose to respond in any way. While Rebecca goes from one verb to another, she falls off the camel. She covers her face. She turns to the slave. She asks him, who is this man? Just not necessarily in disorder, but it's just like one verb after another, after another. It's, I think, echoed actually, not in Yaakov. I think it's echoed in her son, issav. Think about the scene when he buys the soup, the red soup from,
0: yeah. from
2: his brother Jacob, and he just mm-hmm. eats it, and there's all these verbs. There's a certain act- active, almost frantic energy in Rebecca that is visible also in a self speaking of unfinished business and the complicated relationships that seeing our own traits in other people can uh, induce or create sometimes and yet despite all these differences and despite the fact that the, the scene really kind of constantly draws attention to the ways that they're opposites when they actually come together Itzhak is the one to take her, which of course is par for the course, for the time. But I want to draw your attention to one particular detail about it that I think is remarkable, or I should say two particular details. One is that he chooses the location. This is the first time he's choosing something. He's choosing to bring her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. Now we could say, yes, it's the same. He's once again, looking backwards, instead of looking forward, instead of building a new home for his beautiful new wife with all her great traits, he is taking her into the locus of his mourning, the place where he connects to the past. But I think that there is some great unlocking that happens in that moment because, and this is where I think that we go beyond just the idea of complementary roles inhabited by different spouses or different partners. I think that when Yitzchak takes Rebecca to his mother's tent, he frees himself from this backwards, I, I don't mean backwards in the sense of bad, I mean backwards in the sense of just turned backwards, back oriented mm-hmm. gaze. And to explain what I mean about it, I'm sorry, I have to take a step back for a second to an earlier chapter in the book, to Bereshit Bet and the second creation story, and the moment when Adam, awakening from his God induced sleep, sees the woman for the first time. And there's this very moving moment of recognition in that time when he says, uh, zu hapam basar mi b'sari. This time she's flash of my flesh, bone of my bone. And there's this excitement and this intimacy. And then he does something remarkable that's easy to miss. He names her, he calls her Isha, right? That we all know. But he renames himself as well. Because he says, isha ki ish She was taken from a Ish. Except until this point, he's never described as an Ish. He's Adam. Because he's named after his origin, which is the earth, Adama. Suddenly, he names this woman that he sees after himself, but he also names himself after her. And almost as if to emphasize it, the next pasuk tells us that because of this... Um, men leave, a man leaves his uh, father and mother and cleaves onto his wife. Now, it's obviously not true for Adam. He has no mother and father to leave. But he, in a sense, just through the linguistic change that he's going through in his name, he's leaving his uh, connection to the Adamah, his origin, and names himself after his future, after the union he is about to form. And Isaac does something very similar because he takes Rivka, to his mother's tent but then he comes to love her. This is his 1st rivka Rizka-oriented action and it's an emotional action um, that's remarkable because until this point in Tanakh nobody is described through the word like with this word as loving their spouse. Nobody loves their spouse literally until and this he's moment. he's also
1: the only the only one who when he's caught in grar right he's caught because he's openly sexually playful with her meaning there is a show of emotion by itzhak that we really really don't have with anybody else in their relationship exactly
2: exactly and as i said before it's it's whenever we see emotions in Itzhak, it's remarkable because he's so opaque he's so behind the screen of his silence Mm -hmm. all the time and yet here he feels something and then he is comforted after his mother's death and it's i think that what happens in this one moment is almost a variation on what happened to Adam when he saw Eve uh, and what can happen to any of us when we enter a significant relationship, hopefully. Namely that just through making room in ourselves for a different person with all their unique traits that make them remarkably different from ourselves, just by making room in ourselves for it, we grow, we overcome who we were before. We become more than the past, than the story we were part of before. And while Isaac is still the person who follows in his father's footsteps, from this point on, we see him almost, I would say, liberated to shape the world in his father's covenant image, but in his own way. I talked about the well and the field before, about how he comes from the well that represents his brother's story and the field that evokes memories of his mother's burial. Wells and fields come to play a very important role in Huck's life, but it's a role that takes him past his father's path. Because at first he digs up his father's wells, but then he goes on to dig up his own wells. And his father was famously a shepherd, a nomad. Itzchak is the only patriarch who really invests himself in sowing the field and receiving blessings in it. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, I think that Rivka is not just a compliment to him. I think that through this encounter, because of how different they are, because they have to make room for someone who's entirely other, allows him to outgrow the man who was once bound upon a mountain and whose every choice was made for him by other people.
1: Just to, thinking about all, all that, all that insight that you've just shared, that I think the gift of of the right partner is a partner who awakens, awakens their spouse to being a better version of themselves, right? That That's always, you know, and I, I teach young women and they're often, you know, in dating stages. or. Uh, getting married, and and one of the things I'll I'll always share with them is that you always want to check when you're out with somebody, or especially if you're spending a lot of time with them, that you become like a more pronounced, better version of of who you of who you are. Um, and I think that that's really what you're describing when it comes to he's both able to, you know, be connected to his past because he has this Abraham resemblance in his wife, but he's also able to push forward and 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 take that vision a step forward right it doesn't have to be ten step forwards because 10 steps forward because that's not his role in the world but to be to sow the land right to dig new wells to do those things that are an expansion of what he receives from his father while it's still being within the frame of 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 the one who is supposed to supposed to continue I'll also just say and I think we've said it already but that and in those moments where Yitzhak falters right where he's he is going to make a wrong choice we've caused there to to steer him back on course, meaning while she was a very sort of initiative taking front and center kind of personality in their betrothal scene, she becomes the neck, right? She, she's in the she's behind the scenes, but she clearly is the one who was orchestrating. So her role goes to being that sort of quote unquote secondary one, but it's very clear that she's there to make sure that, that, that they steer the course that they're supposed to, to in order to be able to pass on this covenant.
2: I want to shed a slightly different light on that dynamic, specifically in the choice of son when it comes to the issue of the brechot. You know, we only see what the text shows us, but if we think about it, about what's happening behind the scene, about what's between the lines, between the cracks of text, between the cracks of meaning that's given to us, that are given to us. I don't think that, ultimately, Rebecca is the one who steered the ship. She's the one who made the choice for Yitzchak which son Will carry on the blessing. But I don't think that that means that what Yitzchak did, his preference for Asav, his love for him, his desire to give him the blessing, was meaningless or was only a hurdle to be passed. I think that maybe this love, this intention mattered to Asav. Maybe that's what kept him somewhat still attached to his father's tradition. I don't think these things ever get wasted. And I want to take it a little bit into our own history and my family's personal history with the struggle for Soviet Jewry and say that, you know, at the time of the struggle, where I wasn't alive since my father was in prison and my mother was in Israel, but I feel as if I lived through it because I heard about it from so many people so many times from zero, from when I was zero years old, there were different groups within the struggle that had opposing ideas about how to lead it. There are people who thought that it's important to work with the establishment. There are people who thought that the establishment is stifling efforts and grassroots movements are the only way to do it. Some people thought quiet diplomacy will work. Some people thought only loud, big demonstrations will work. Even amongst the dissidents in Russia, amongst the refuseniks in Russia, there are groups that thought they should focus on Jewish education and lay off the political struggle for the right to move to Israel so that the authorities will let them Pass on Jewish legacy to their children and there were groups that said no we have to fight as hard as we can so we can leave and worry about the education later. And the way I described it now it sounds very you know nice and polite. It wasn't polite. People refused to talk to each other. People sabotaged each other's success. When you meet some of the people who were involved in this in this struggle for Soviet Jewry um, today, some of them are still fighting that fight. Some of them are still arguing what they were the right ones. My father says they were all right. We don't know what each piece did, what the quiet diplomacy achieved, what the grassroots achieved, what the people focused on Jewish identity achieved, what the people focused on political activism achieved. It's very possible that without all those different pieces, without people who are single-mindedly committed to them, each one of them separately, I mean, um, the struggle would have ultimately failed because you need to attack from many fronts to achieve anything great in reality. What I took from it in my own, you know, as part of my own personal journey of learning the history of my family, of our people, and using it to build my own life and uh, my own path in this world and the Jewish journey, hopefully uh, to have happy times soon (laughs) in it, is that no effort is wasted. And when we all take different complementary roles, sometimes we really, really strongly disagree about which one is the right one and the important one at a time, but we don't know. We don't know the impact that each of us is making. And if we go back to what we started with and how Itzhak in many ways models for us our own path, since we're continuing a path that was already set for us as Jews, as Israelis, um, as, you know, uh, Zionists, I look at the marriage of Itzhak and Rivka. And instead of just focusing on the miscommunications or lack of Communication altogether, and the lies and the deception. What I choose to focus on is that they brought such different things; they impacted each other, and together they impacted
1: the world. Rachel, thank you so much for this conversation. I think that the the echoes of these ideas obviously are much more are, are much more resonant than just in this week's parsha. And and I I guess I I wish and hope and pray that. Uh, when we can go back, we can go back to fighting over our pettier issues. That so we get to remember that truth. That ultimately, uh, that to me is always the depth of of midrash, Or when there's a multiplicity of voices, right? Not one of them doesn't necessarily have to be. Sometimes we need someone who's right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go into that moral equivalency place. But, but, it, but many times, as you said, we really need the effort uh, on all different fronts. In order to bring about uh, bring about a change, and I'll also maybe just add as a final word, which is that I think that that's the significance of having three patriarchs. We have three, right? Chazal associate each with a different midah, with a different attribute, because they all brought something else to the table, and it, we wouldn't have been to we wouldn't have been able to successfully pass over a covenant just through an Avraham, just through Yitzhak, or just through Yaakov. We really need that blending of energies, that blending of, of strengths. And, uh, and, and yeah, I, I really appreciate all, all of these thoughts. And as we continue on in these conversations, we'll slowly hopefully uncover what all of the other figures are bringing to the table in, in this early DNA section of Avam
0: in the book of Brasheed. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Sefa.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.